Alrighty. Well, we're going to go ahead and get started. We're in Second Samuel chapter 19. I got to tell you what a ride I had the last hour. My goodness. I know I look cool, calm, and collective, but I'm anything but. I, uh, I left the house at 5.30, went, ran down to Staples because I was out of paper in my printer. Got two reams of paper, came back, put some in. It wouldn't close. I couldn't get the cartridge to go in. And I turned it off. I, I took it apart. I couldn't figure it out. So then I thought, well, I'll just transfer my notes from my laptop that I study on. I'll transfer that to, that, to my Surface Pro, and I'll bring that over. And uh, that wouldn't work. I couldn't get my, my Surface Pro to uh, receive mail. <laughs> you talk about a satanic attack. So I go back to the printer, and I'm like, okay, Lord, there's got to be something. And sure enough, I, I picked it up on its side. I looked down in, and there was a piece of paper that had gotten wedged in. So I pulled that out, got it. Here I am. Okay. So otherwise, I'd have been preaching without notes. And, uh, you know, you do what you got to do. But I would pr much prefer to have all the notes that I studied with today. So good to be with you, and I hope you didn't have nearly as difficult time getting here as I did. I hope you were able just to come right over. I am noticing now, though, in Vero, the traffic. Wow. Wow. Just to go, you know, from one end of 8th Street to the other, unbelievable the amount of cars that are now in town. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. So the border for Canada is open, and so the Canadians can come and join us as well. And uh, I, uh, Scott Walker told me that this year in Indian River County, we started the school year with 1,000 more students. Is that just the high school? Just the high school. Is that just Vero Beach High School? 1,000 more students than the year before because of the numbers of people moving to Florida. So... Um, we must have a good governor or something. I don't know, but people want to come here. So, all right, let's, let's go ahead and turn this into a spiritual moment for the next hour, hour and 15, and uh, ask the Lord to bless our time. Father, tonight we are thankful, thankful again. The Bible says, in all things give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. And tonight, Lord, we do. We give thanks, even in the difficulties of the day, even in the setbacks of life. Lord, you said, I want you to give thanks in all things. Lord, Sunday, as we look at Acts chapter 5, we're going to see that up close and personal in the lives of the early church, how they gave thanks, even rejoicing over the fact that they could suffer for the namesake of Jesus Christ. So tonight, Lord, we come. We thank you that you're building us up scripturally, spiritually, by the word of God not so that we have more knowledge alone, but so that we might live differently, that it might turn into wisdom. From knowledge, we use it wisely, and we touch the lives of others. I pray that you would be with folks, and you would uh, bless them and help them. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in chapter 19 of our study tonight, uh, we find David returning to the throne in Jerusalem. He actually uh, doesn't come into Jerusalem until the end of the chapter. Uh, but his mighty men, as you know, routed out Absalom, and his men, Absalom, tried to take over the throne, somewhat of a coup. And, uh, of course, uh, Joab, uh, the commander of, uh, Abs of uh, David's army, 
one of the three commanders that David appointed actually took Absalom out. And we studied that last week, and now uh, we tonight are going to focus on really some, we're going to look at human uh, responses to pain, to sorrow, and the Bible in this particular chapter doesn't deal with the comfort of that. It deals with the frustration and the, the wrong response towards grief and suffering. It, you wouldn't think there could be a wrong response, but there can be. And we're going to see it in King David. So let's pick up at verse 1. It was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. Now this is after the battle. We know that he, Absalom was killed in the battle. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. So David's loyal and sacrificial supporters who went to battle for their king, who won the battle because of the strength of the Lord that was in them, returned from battle victorious. Usually when you return, there's a victory celebration, and you rejoice over the fact that God brought you through the battle. But they couldn't celebrate. The idea in the Hebrew sentence structure in this passage where it says, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. He is grieved. It says the king is grieving for his son. The whole thing, it, it speaks of a mourning that is excessive weeping. It's excessive. It's not just mourning. It's wailing. It's excessive in every way. And the people could hear it. And word spread all over the city. The king is weeping. He's in excessive grief over the death of his son. Now remember, his son was the reason that he had to leave Jerusalem and give up the throne. His son was the one who went behind his back and rallied the people to himself. His son was wicked. His son was rebellious. His son was selfish. He tried to take the throne for himself from his father. His son chased after his father to kill him. And and yet David, instead of winning the battle against Absalom's army, which was much larger, David had his mighty men and he had those from Jerusalem who supported him in his army. Absalom took time and gathered all Israel against David. So ten tribes had been gathered against Judah, really. That's amazing. And yet, David is weeping for his son, his rebellious son. Now, we all would understand, no matter how far our child would fall into sin, at their passing, we would weep. Even if they were attempting to kill us, there's still something in our heart that would be saddened, and we would weep over the loss of a child. That, that's understandable. That's explainable. This is different in the sense, if you put it in context, 
It wasn't just David that Absalom was after. Absalom was after all of Israel. He wanted to rule. And the victory was won by this smaller group of folks who supported the king, the true king. And the king can't see it. The only thing he sees is like a horse with blinders. All he sees is a death of a son. And the success of mourning is basically taking David away from what's really going on for the people. So the people end up in mourning, even though they had a victory. Now, excessive mourning, because we can do the same. There is such a thing as excessive mourning. It's one thing to mourn, and we should. That's a natural response to loss. God gives us emotion. He's the one that created it. And mourning or sorrow is how is one way that emotion is expressed by us, and that's good. Excessive is different. You say, well, what's the difference? You gotta, what's the line that you draw? Well, here it is. Uh, excessive mourning is basically rooted in doubt and in self-indulgence. Mourning that's rooted in doubt and self-indulgence. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, we see in the Greek structure of this sentence very much a similarity to the structure in this story of David mourning. 1 Thessalonians 4.13, the Apostle Paul is warning the Christians of his day. He says this, quote, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. He's talking about believers who have already passed away. They've died. We don't want you to be ignorant, uninformed about your brothers and your sisters, your family members who were believers. We don't want you to be uninformed about what's going on right now, where they are, about these who are asleep. He calls it asleep. It's actually death. He says that you may not grieve as others do, who have no hope. We don't want you to grieve as the world grieves. The world grieves with no hope. It's doubt. It's fear-driven. It's self-centered. Some Christians' sorrow at times in death and tragedy are just like those who have no hope in God. That should never be the case. Sorrow, yes, every Christian should express and experience sorrow at the passing of a friend or loved one, absolutely. But this idea that we would grieve the way the world grieves, the world is hopeless. Death is final. I remember meeting with David. David, I won't give his last name, but David was a Jewish man that I be, uh, befriended uh, when I was living in Palm Beach Gardens. Uh, um, our children, uh, Mark especially, played sports, and David's son played sports. And one time, David and I found ourselves traveling together alone to the ball game down in Boca. And we struck up a conversation, and I asked him all about 
his belief system. And by the way, Jews don't all believe the exact same way on things. And because today there's a lot of Jews who really are, they're not following God at all. I mean, they, that's, it's a religion to them, it's a tradition, but it's certainly not even, they're not even involved in the religion. And David believed that when you die, that's it, you're done, which most Jews, there's nothing else, that's it, you're done. Okay, the Sadducees that we studied last Sunday, that's what they believe. This is it. You get this, and when this is up, it's over. That's why the emphasis on passing on your name to your children and children. And so David and I had this long conversation, and I realized, for him, this is it. There's nothing else. When he passes, it's done completely. And this is how David who knows God intimately, is grieving. It's not right. It's not healthy. It comes on the wrong day that he does. Well, he should never do this anyway. Verse 3, And the people stole into the city that day as people steal and who are ashamed when they flee in battle. In other words, David's excessive sorrow made his loyal friends and supporters who were on the battlefield feel ashamed that they even won a great victory by the way he's acting. We shouldn't have won. We sh if we'd have known the king was going to be like this. They return from battle not feeling like the victors that they really truly are, but like the defeated. Verse 4, the king covered his face and the king cried with a loud voice, Oh, my son, Absalom. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. That's three times now he has said, my son. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. Wow. For you, made, you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. David, it was really just about Absalom. Before we went to battle, you said, do well with Absalom. When the servant came running to you, the messenger, to give you the word of what happened on the battlefield, you didn't care about the victory. You asked about Absalom. Verse 7, Now therefore arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants, for I swear by the Lord. Man, that's heavy-duty stuff. If you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night, and this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Wow. So let's get the picture, okay? Right now, David is mastered by his feelings, by the sorrow that he feels. His feelings have taken over, and now he can't put things in proper perspective. Yes, the loss of a son is huge. It's great, but he's the king. And the people fought hard for him, and they won the battle. He needs to see more on this day than the loss of a son. He's got, as a king, he's got to see the people. 
It's amazing in this story, the context really says more than the words. Again, Absalom was wicked. The son that died was very wicked. He was harming all the people. You have to give a lot of credit to a parent who learns that their child is a criminal, who learns that their child is worse, a murderer, and they turn the child in, knowing that potentially that child could face the death penalty, but they do the right thing. David, as a parent, is doing the wrong thing. Many Christians lack enough profound feeling in their worship of God. Worship, the feeling's not bad. Feelings are good. They're good. I'm so thankful I can feel. When my firstborn came out of the womb, boy, I was overwhelmed with feelings of joy. Overwhelmed. Teared right up. And every one of them after, I teared right up. I just did something to me. Emotion is good, but never is emotion to master us, to lord over us. Never. Some people might even think, because in our church, we I, from time to time, I, I talk about, don't be led in worship of God by your feelings. That's a problem today in churches. Not all churches, but there are churches that's a real issue. Here's what I mean. Let me spell it out clearly. Should we feel emotion as we focus our knowledge, our understanding on God? Yes. As I think about the greatness of my God, I become emotionally charged. What I know about God fuels what I feel about God. The more things I know about God, the more I'm fueled with emotion. Never should it be that you are fully knowledgeable of God, but you can't feel anything. That should never be the case. Neither should it be the case that you feel before you think. Try that when you go down to the car lot. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You're walking around, you're looking, and whoo, man, look. And you open that car door, and you can smell that new car leather. Man, oh man, I need this. And so before you got there, you set it in your mind. It's not about how much I can afford. This is the amount of money I'm willing to spend. But as you smell, oh, then all of a sudden you're lining up with the salesman who's going to ask you, so how much do you want your payment to be? <laughs> and you're like, oh, yeah, let's, let's get this done. Well, it's an eight-year loan. Let's do it. Ooh. Led by emotion. You come into some churches. When you walk in into the worship center, There's darkness. There's a haze of smoke. There are these fixed lights, colored lights, 
and they shine through the smoke and it just enhances the beam. You hear the music. You have not even had a single thought about God yet. But you are feeling it. What are you feeling? Well, I don't know. But it's not God. You're being moved by the mood in the room. That is not worship. True worship of God will allow you to be in a quiet place with nobody around and nothing but sunlight or darkness. You could be in a prison cell. And as you consider the greatness of God, what the Scripture teaches you, you begin to emote. Tears begin to roll. It had nothing to do with the surroundings. But when a church goes to the point of making sure the surrounding is the first experience, oftentimes it can become difficult to really get connected to what you know about God because, man, you're feeling it. Oh, I'm just feeling it. But don't think for a second that emotion is wrong. There is nothing wrong in the worship of God for a good amen to be shouted out at the right moment when the knowledge, because what you're saying, when you say amen, you're saying it is true. It's true. There's nothing wrong with a good amen. There's nothing wrong with the right clap at the appropriate time. Should we clap after every song that's played from the front? No. To do that, it's like you're going to a concert. The artist finishes another song. He plays another one. He plays another one. No, no. In worship, you're listening to the words. You're contemplating. You're meditating. You're singing these words that mean something. And some songs are sung in such a way that they don't need a clap afterwards. They need silence. Other times, woo, let's all clap. Let's stand to our feet. Let's shout. <laughs> clap your hands, all you people. Shout unto God with a voice of triumph, the Bible says. That's God calling his people to emotional response. Response. You don't begin with it. You end with it. Does that make sense? David is completely overwhelmed with sorrow and he can't see the truth that's going on around him. See, the problem with David is not what he didn't know. He knew that his son was killed. The problem is that he has forgotten that God orchestrated a mighty victory for his people and restored David to the throne and strengthened his loyal supporters. When someone is overcome in tragedy or sorrow, the problem is not in what they know, but in what they have forgotten. You can come into worship in church and just get going because of the emotion of it, and you're caught up and you're just going with it, and not even paying attention that the words, the lyrics of the song do not line up with Scripture. A lot of popular songs on the radio, Christian songs, have lousy theology. 
and we don't even notice it. Why? Love that song. Jack that thing up a little bit. Smell my new leather. Whoo, what a moment this is. <laughs> uh. So Joab came at David pretty hard. Look at the latter part of verse 5. You, you have today covered the sh with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines. Sometimes we need someone who will be honest with us and call us out when we throw a pity party. Amen? You need somebody to come to you when you're focused on the wrong thing. You're only seeing what you know, but you're, not, you're forgetting a whole lot. And somebody needs to walk up and just smack you across the face, not literally, figuratively, and say, snap out of it. Don't we all need that from time to time? Yay, that's right. Yeah, because you're not seeing everything. They need to help you see more clearly. You need smelling salts. Verse 6, because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. That's the smelling salts. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Wow. What is Joab doing here? I'll tell you what he's doing. He's doing surgery with a scalpel on David with, pre with precision. He's coming at David. He's basically telling David, you're foolish in your excessive grieving and you're very selfish right now. But he didn't leave him there all cut up on the surgery table, okay? Look at verse 6 or verse 7. Now therefore arise, go out, and speak kindly to your servants, for I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, a man, not a man will stand with you this night, and this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. So he doesn't just cut David up and let him see the whole picture, but then he says, now David, here's what you need to do. He's a friend. He's trying to help David. See, we need people who will be honest with us. I, I had a friend in Palm Beach Gardens that was like that. He was, I've, I've had friends here in Bureau too like that, but nobody liked this guy. This guy, uh, a solid believer, didn't get saved until he was in his late 40s. He was already the vice president of a major uh, uh, company that has offices all over now in the United States. He was one of the first guys to start the company, an engineering firm. If I gave you the name, you'd know exactly that firm. And, and uh, he got saved. He retired when he was like 45 and decided, or 48, 50, decided he and his wife were going to go into ministry. They were going to start ministering to people. He became the uh, uh, chairman of Dunklin Memorial Camp, which is a drug and alcohol rehab, a 12-month program helping men, pouring the word of God into them. Uh, they built cities of refuge all over the world, helping men who were caught up in drugs and alcohol. And this guy was the chairman of, of the elder board. He was the guy that ran our meetings. And every once in a while, we met every week. We had a meeting. We would have fellowship. We'd have prayer. And one, one, one time we met, I remember, I'll never forget, we walked out of the restaurant, see our chicks down in Palm Beach Gardens, wonderful little roasted chicken, man. I'm telling you, you walk in that place, 
you smell that pasta and roasted chicken. Woo! <laughs> like new, like new, new car leather. We walked out and stood on the corner of that sidewalk, and he lovingly confronted me. Just like Joab. And I needed to hear it. Did I enjoy it? No. Did I want a knee jerk in response? Yes. The choice was, I can humble up or I can bow up. But we all need that person in our life. The Bible tells us that better that you receive the wounds of a friend than the kisses of an enemy. Basically, that's saying don't get caught up in politics because your enemies will come up and give you a big old smooch on the cheek and act like they are so much for you and whatever. Behind your back, they will cut you to shreds. You want the friend who at times is willing to risk the friendship because he loves you or she loves you, and they tell the truth. Then the king, verse 8, arose and took his seat in the gate, and the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate. David is now out in public when it says that he's sitting in the gate. What it means in that is that he's now back in authority. He's in authority. And all the people came before the king. Now Israel had fled every man to his own house. So while he was mourning and word spread that he was mourning, they couldn't celebrate a victory. They all went home. They were all mourning because the king was mourning. They didn't understand it, but man, I mean, Absalom, he's the worst guy in the world to have come out of the battle alive. We're, we're kind of glad, but at the same time, look at the king. We must be missing something. They all went home. But now the king's out, they come out. So when they heard that David had come out to meet with people, the people left their tents and they came out to see their king. There are times when you don't feel like doing something, but you do it because you know others are counting on you or because others need you. There's times where you don't have what you think is the emotional uh, credits. There's nothing left. I'm depleted. But there's times where you need to come out and you need to speak to people. You need to encourage people. You know what I'm talking about. We can be very tired, weary, and then we get a call from someone about another friend, and we know we should pick up the phone and call them. I need to call them. I need to get with them. Sometimes it doesn't have to be in the moment. I mean, you know, we're not, we're not supposed to just live on everybody else's timetable, but I'm going to do that. I need to do that. And there's times where we hesitate to do it. Dave, that's where David, David didn't want to do this. But Joab really called him out on it. And Joab was right. So David went and sat in the public square where he could be among people. So David's feelings told him to stay locked up in an excessive mourning. But when he thought through it logistically, he realized, no, this is a bigger moment than just my own personal loss. I need the perspective of the people. And after this difficult day, David never again wept for Absalom. This is it. 
So he was excessive. He went too far with it. He was self-centered in it. He showed doubt. But now it's over. He got it out. He moves on. Verse 9, And all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines. And now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, who, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? Okay, let's, let's get the picture because something has happened here. First of all, understand when it says he went to the city gate, it wasn't speaking of the city of Jerusalem or the walls of Jerusalem. The temple would not be built, uh, the next temple, until Solomon is the king. Uh, David's not in Jerusalem at the moment when that was happening. The city gate that they're referring to is literally they have crossed over the Jordan into the wilderness, and that's where Absalom comes and they fight. They win the battle. They go back to their camps, to their tents, and they have what is a city gate area, and that's where he was doing. He hasn't crossed back over the Jordan yet to come into Jerusalem. That is still yet to come. And, but, but now notice, there's a shift. We move from the Scripture who is recording, the passage records the experience with David and Absalom after his death, and then the passage shifts to a deeper issue that didn't start on this day, but it certainly will not be finished in this chapter. It's going to continue on to the point where we will have a divided nation. We will have the tribes in the north, the ten tribes, against the two tribes in the south. And all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies, saved us from the hand of the Philistines, and now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? So, so what's happening, the tribes of Israel understood what David did for them. They understood that they rejected him and embraced Absalom. They get that. And they understood that Absalom was now dead. But that doesn't mean that they're ready to fall back in love with David, the ten tribes. Okay, David's back, coming back to the throne. And we need to keep in mind they only seem to want David back after Absalom's coup failed. Had Absalom won, those ten tribes would have been thrilled. It would have been those who were in the region of Judah, Jerusalem, that would have wept. But the fact is, Absalom's gone, so what do we do? So there's this incredible uh, indecision in the people. And King David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar the priest, Say to the elders of Judah, Why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house when the word of all Israel has come to the king? You are my brothers, you are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? So David's not interested in forcing his reign on all of Israel. Okay, Before he gets back, he wants to know that people voluntarily wanted him back. He knows that's not the case. There is a feud going on right now among the tribes. And David's calling on his friends, Zadok and Abiathar the priests, to strengthen, to shore up the elders 
and those tribes. He's wanting them to, hey, try to get them on board here. I'm not going to rule people by force. I want them to love me. I want them to be able to say, this is our king. And say to Amasa, are you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me and more also if you are not commander of my army from now on in place of Joab. Ooh. So Joab just confronted the king, called him out rightly. And the next move of David is to remove Joab as the commander and place Absalom's captain of his army as the commander. Now, understand, I don't know, the, the Scripture does not say that the reason David did this was to get even with what Absalom just did. This is not David bowing up against Absalom's confrontation. This is probably going before that. This is Joab disobeying the order of the king not to kill Absalom. This is probably more about that. If you cannot trust your commander, you don't want him serving in that role. So the king came back to the Jordan and Judah and came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. And Shimei, the son of Jerah, so things are lining up. The, the priest had success with the elders uh, in Jerusalem, and word was spreading. They were getting the word out to the ten tribes. And so David is now starting to make his way back, crossing the Jordan. But all of a sudden, remember when David was leaving Jerusalem, and you had... Shimei who comes out and he's mocking the king, he's, he's cursing the king, he's throwing rocks at the king and his men, and one of the king's soldiers, one of his mighty warriors said, let me just go over there and take his head off. And David said, no, today's, a day. we're not doing that today. <laughs> and so now that's the guy who shows up as David's coming back towards uh, Jerusalem. And look at this. And Shimei, the son of Jerah, the Benjaminite from Behurim, hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. And with him were a thousand men from Benjamin. And Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, who was Ziba. Remember, this was Mephibosheth's servant. But before he was Jonathan, Saul's son's uh, son, servant. Okay, so he was a servant to Mephibosheth who was Jonathan's son, but he was also, before that, that Ziba was the servant to King Saul. And so interestingly, here comes Ziba. Remember what happened when David was leaving Jerusalem? It was Ziba who showed up with two donkeys loaded down with supplies for David. And he said to David, I just couldn't see you leaving town. I need to come. I wanted to bless you and your men and, and do all this good stuff. Now, all of a sudden, he comes running back. Why is he doing that? I'll tell you why. Because he lied. He, would, he didn't bring those supplies to David. Uh, Mephibosheth was the one who wanted to go see David and go with him into the wilderness. And Ziba, the servant, went and prepared the donkeys and then took off without him. Got to David and told David, Mephibosheth, he's turned on you. He's now... He's with, he's with Absalom. So now, 
even though David doesn't know that that's the case, here comes Ziba trying to soften again. You know, when you tell a lie, you got to cover yourself over and over and over again. That's what Ziba's doing here. And so the king came back to the Jordan and Judah, and these guys come out, and uh, they, it says here, And Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, with his 15 sons and 20 servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king, and they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure. Whatever you want, king, we're your friends. The kisses of an enemy. Okay? What a contrast of events. David left Israel, a desperate fugitive, rejected by the nation, hunted down by his own son, Absalom. He returns to Jerusalem, escorted by thousands of enthusiastic supporters, who some of them were, were against him back then. Verse 18, And Shimei, the son of Gera, the one who cursed him out and who threw rocks at him, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan and said to the king, Let not my lord hold me guilty or remember how your servant did wrong on the day that my lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart, for your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down to meet my lord the king. So this guy is really repenting of his sins. He's confessing it. He's repenting of it. Now, the interesting thing is he's not confessing hidden sins. These were sins that were committed out in public. David saw the sin. He's confessing because he's already been caught. Sometimes people don't confess their sin until they're caught. And then you've got to question the true repentance of it. Not that they can't repent. They can. But you wonder. So now, he's, he's now contrite in spirit. He really is. He repented greatly before David. He made no attempt here to minimize his actions. He's taking full responsibility. This is the thing about real repentance. It will show itself not only in words, but also in action. Repentance is never just words, ever, because repentance begins with you thinking differently. Repentance ends with you turning and going the opposite direction. You can't just think differently and confess that you're thinking differently. You have to actually walk differently. You, there's, there's a change of course. That's what he's doing. He's truly repenting, and David notices that. So David spared the life of Shimei. He showed forgiveness to the man who formerly bitterly cursed him. If you want the reference for when he cursed him out, 2 Samuel 16, 5 through 13. 2 Samuel 16, 5 through 13. A few weeks ago, we studied that. So right now, here's the thing I want you to, we've got to make this applicable. It can't just be about David and his people. Um, each of us probably in this room as we think about Shimei and what he did to David, each of us are thinking about somebody, someone who was a Shimei to us. And then the question is, in your mind, is would I forgive my Shimei the way David forgave his? And that's where the issue shows up. Am I willing to let my shimmy off the hook the way David let shimmy off the hook? And probably what we need to do is stop right there 
lay that thought aside. Go to a new question. The question is, have I ever been a shimmy to someone else? You say, I would never go and curse a person out like that. I'd never throw rocks at them. Okay, we're not talking about literal. We're talking about in the heart, in private. Have you not been a shimmy to others? Is it possible that behind their back, you spoke to someone else about them? You were throwing rocks figuratively? David forgave Shimmy. We're concerned about whether we can forgive somebody, our own Shimmy, but the real question is, have you ever been a Shimmy? And how would you hope the person that you wounded would respond to you? Don't think too long. Just look to the cross. You and I, Put Jesus Christ on the cross. And His words from the cross to the Father, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Those who have been forgiven much, forgive much. When you really put the right question before you, have I been that person that I'm really upset with? Have I ever done that to somebody else? You did it to Jesus, and chances are you've done it more than once to somebody. Now all of a sudden, coming back to the other question, could I forgive them the way David forgave Shimmy? How did David forgive Shimmy? David began to realize in that moment as Shimmy was down on his bowed down before the king, confessing his sin, David realized, if the Lord had not moved in my favor on this day, I would not be returning to Jerusalem as king. It is all God. That's the reason why I'm able to go back and be king. Who am I then to hold Shimmy hostage? moving forward, when God's been so gracious, so kind, so loving towards me. It just changes the whole perspective, does it not? See, this is what enabled David to forgive Shimei. He remembered that he had abandoned God, and yet God never abandoned David. Those who have been forgiven will forgive. It's also true, those who struggle to forgive struggle to see their own sin. That's always the pathology behind unforgiveness. You're not willing to see your own sin. You're an inaccurate judge. You are partial. You quickly and easily see the sins of others. You can't see your own sin. That's why you don't forgive. Much to think about. David knew it was the Lord who gave him the throne again, so 
He was secure in God. He didn't need to take matters in his own hand with Shimei. See, insecurity is a great motivator for revenge, a great motivator for holding on to bitterness. That's what, that's what insecurity does. <laughs> it keeps you from seeing accurately and in a healthy way the whole picture. Verse 24, And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. It's not like Mephibosheth, knowing that David's returning, had a change of action and chose to go and impress David. You can't grow hair that only could have grown that long in the amount of time David had been gone, or fingernails that long, or cleaning yourself for that long without you holding the same focus, the same belief. He was always true to the king. Always. That's going to be proven in just a moment by how David responds and by how Mephibosheth responds to David's response. <laughs> okay, this is really good. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? And he answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me, Ziba. For your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go with the king, for your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my lord, the king. But the, Okay, let's stop for a second. So Ziba came to see David. What Ziba did was act like he's David's friend. He told back, this is going back when David was leaving. He told David that Mephibosheth's against you. He's lined up with, with Absalom. What did King David say to him? You, all the land of your, of your first master, Saul, I gave to Mephibosheth. And I told you to take your family and go work for Mephibosheth. Now, because of Mephibosheth, we, now you get all the land of King Saul. He literally took the land of Mephibosheth and gave it to Ziba. Now, the backstory that you don't see here, but is true, even though Mephibosheth had all the land of King Saul, which is his grandfather, he didn't live on the land. Because David told Mephibosheth, you'll stay in my house, you'll eat my food. So basically, Ziba had been managing, stewarding the land that belonged to Mephibosheth by himself. He had his own branch. He had his own, I mean, really, honestly. And Mephibosheth just let him do whatever he wanted. But now, David has given everything to Ziba, the servant. And so now, look at this. Uh, he, he has slandered your servant to my lord the king, but my lord the king is like the angel of God. This is Mephibosheth saying to David, Do therefore what seems good to you, whatever you decide to do. I've told you the truth. Ziba deceived me and you. But you do whatever you feel like you need to do. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before, the, my, before you, David, my lord the king. 
but you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? In other words, I don't live and die by my land. I don't live and die by my heritage of being Saul's son, grandson. I live and die by your orders, by you. You are my king. And the king said to him, Why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided. You and Ziba shall divide the land. And get the picture. He gave all the land to Mephibosheth, Saul's, Saul's grandson, Jonathan's son. Then Ziba comes with a lie. He gives all that land to Ziba. Now he splits the land down the middle. Why? Well, that's a good question. Maybe for some odd reason, David can't connect the dots, and he's really not sure of Mephibosheth. Maybe David's heard this side of the story, He's now heard the other side of the story, and he knows the truth is somewhere in the middle. So I'm going to give them both equal parts. Who knows? I don't know why David is doing this, but look at the response of Mephibosheth. This is really good. And Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come safely home. Remember the story where the king is told of the two women who are arguing over who's the baby, who the baby belongs to, and the wisdom? Well, let me just cut the baby in half, and you can both have a half. And the mother, the true mother, don't do that. He can have him. Hmm. Here it is. Here's Mephibosheth. I don't need all the land you gave me. I'm here because of you. I'm just glad you're safe. I'm glad you're coming home. I love that. What a great heart. Mephibosheth was content to let Ziba have all the property, and if he could only know that David reigned, that's all he wanted to know. David's reign was more important to him than his personal enrichment. That is so good. That would be like, each of us are called to be ministers of God. And God has gifted us with the right abilities to do what He's called us to do. Remember what it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which He prepared beforehand, before you were born. He created the good works that you would walk in them. So, first of all, whose ministry is it really? The Lord's. Whose gifts to do that ministry? Whose are they? They're God's. What did you bring to the table? Nothing. The Lord graciously gave me. He saved me. He gifted me. And He gave me a ministry to serve Him. And yet, Something grows in your heart. This seed of self-preservation, a seed of pride, a seed of selfishness. And now all of a sudden you're talking about your ministry, what you do for the Lord. 
Next thing you know, you're over here talking to somebody grumbling. Well, nobody's ever called me to come up in front of all the people and be thanked for all that I do. All of a sudden, you've taken that ministry as yours. Mephibosheth was saying, I'll never forget why I'm here. None of us should ever think for a second that the ministry belongs to us. I've told you the story countless times, but it's so rich. I was sharing it this week with someone. They just cracked up laughing, but they said, that's so good. The story of a friend of mine who had a ministry in four counties on the east coast of Florida. And, and he was bringing churches and pastors together. I mean, various denominations. I mean, how often do you see Presbyterians hanging out with Charismatics? Okay? He brought all these different folks together for the cause of evangelism, for sharing the gospel. We brought Bill Bright in down in Palm Beach County and, and put the Jesus video or the Jesus film, it was a video, into 450,000 homes. We raised all the churches, raised $1.4 million to put that video in every home in Palm Beach County. I led the campaign for the follow-up. We saw 7,000 people who responded that they were saved because of the video. So who knows how many more didn't respond, but they, the Lord saved them. So that's the kind of stuff that happened. And this guy was the director. He coordinated but whose ministry is that really? Is it not the Lord's? Who gave him the administrative gifting, the gift of communication the, to go and speak to pastors and bring these, these guys that would never have fellowship, bring them together for the cause? He, it was his abilities. So he goes out and he sits with, at that time, one of the spiritual fathers of South Florida, Mickey Evans. Mickey Evans graduated from Baptist Seminary, magna cum laude, took a church, a Baptist church, and after a year and a half sat down and said, Lord, if this is all this is, I want no part of it. I thought you called me to pastor a church. And he realized God had called him but not to do what Mickey wanted to do. God said, I, I raised you up to go and work with drug addicts and alcoholics, the old cowboys in Florida that are messed up. And that's why he started Dunklin Memorial Camp. And they have cities of refuge again all over the world. When I was going out there doing some teaching and just being part of the, the, the men of that program helping, uh, we've had guys coming from all over the world, guys from South Africa. We had a team come from Estonia, where vodka is king. And they were coming from the prison system in Estonia because men were getting saved and they wanted to give them sound biblical training so that they would not return to alcohol when they left. And, and, and so this director up and down the coast, he goes and he meets with Mickey. He sits down in his office 
Mickey, I've got a problem. This is going on in my ministry, and I don't know what to do, and I just I don't know what this guy thinks he's doing. And Mickey said, let's take a walk. So Dunklin's located out west of, or actually, yeah, west of Stewart, Florida, out in the woods. And uh, he took him out into the woods. And there was an opening and a pasture, and there's cows and everything. And uh, they were walking along, and this guy was saying, well, my, in my ministry, this is how I've always done it. This is what I've always said. And I don't know why this guy was thinking he could. And Mickey reached down and picked up a fresh cow patty and slung it at him and hit him. What are you doing? Mickey said, that's what's coming out of your mouth right now. You might as well wear it. It's not your ministry. Those aren't your people. Those aren't your pastors. The Lord gave you that ministry. Who do you think you are? It was a Joab, David moment. And it got that guy's attention. That man went on to do great things, and even publicly shared that story with pastors and others because it changed his life. We need those moments where God wakes us up. Mephibosheth is being real, man. He is just, I want David. I don't care about anything else. He has a right heart for ministry, doesn't he? God can use people like that. That's all he needs. He just needs your cooperation. He already has the ministry for you. Verse 31, now Barzilli, so this is the Italian in the bunch, Barzilli, the Gileadite, had come down from Rogalum, and he went on with the king to the Jordan to escort him over the Jordan. Now understand this. George, you're going to like this. Barzelli is a senior leader. He's older. He's so old that at the end of this story, David says, why don't you come and live in my castle, in my palace with me? He goes, why do I want to do that? I've got things to do back home. He's not giving up. He's still got, he's still got years ahead of him to serve the Lord. And he says, and when it's time for me to go, as it will be for everybody in this room, you want to lay your head on death's pillow and know you fulfilled God's call for your life. This guy's fully in charge of what's going on in his life. He's up in years. He shows up to bring David across the Jordan. Barzelli was a very aged man, 80 years old. Let's hear it for the 80-year-olds. Amen. Every church needs 80-year-olds. I'm telling you right now. We need 80-year-olds as much as we need babies. We need 80-year-olds as much as we need middle-aged. I'm telling you, everybody in God's family matters. That's why at Vero Bible Fellowship, we make a big deal out of being a multi-generational church. We don't cater to any one group. We want everybody. Everybody the Lord chooses to bring to us. Amen? So he had provided the king with food while he stayed at Mahanam, for he was a very wealthy man. And the king said to Barzelli, Come over with me, and I will provide for you with me in Jerusalem. But Barzelli said to the king, How many years have I still to live that I should go up 
with the king to Jerusalem. I am this day 80 years old. Can I discern what is pleasant and what is not? Can your servant taste what the, he eats and what he think or what he drinks? Can I still listen to the voice of singing men and singing women? In other words, if I go to the palace, all the stuff that you want me to enjoy, I can't enjoy it. At my age, I can't see straight. I can't hear much. <laughs> what am I doing at your house, you know, your big palace? Why then should your servant be an added burden to my lord the king? Your servant will go a little while over the Jordan with the king. Why should the king repay me with such a reward? I'm going to go ahead and travel with you, David, but not because I'm looking for something in return. I just like you. I've been loyal to you all along. I'm going to help you get back to Jerusalem. That's all I'm wanting to do with you here. So please let your servant return that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and my mother. But here is your servant, Chimham. Let him go over with my lord the king and do for him whatever seems good to you. Who is Chimham? It doesn't say, except in, if you were to look in 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 7. Let me tell you what, this is at the end of David's life. He's about to pass and he gives out some final words. And here's what he says. But deal loyally with the sons of Barzeli, the Gileadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table. For with such loyalty they met me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. So most scholars believe that Chimham was his son. So take my son. And the king answered, Chimham shall go over with me, and I will do for him whatever seems good to you, and all that you desire of me I will do for you. Then all the people went over the Jordan, and the king went over, and the king kissed Barzeli and blessed him, and he returned to his own home. I love that. It takes everybody to do the work of the Lord. It's not just one person. It's not about a title. It's about a testimony. And everybody should have a testimony of how God used them for His purposes and cause. I love that. In gratitude, David offered him the honor of living in his home, but Barzilli was taken back by David's offer. Man, I've, for the years I've got left, let me just do the work that God's been, you know, having me do all these years. Let me stay at it until the Lord calls me home. I love that. He didn't, look, he's not retiring. He's still ministering. So Chimham went with David in Barzilli's absence and, uh, Verse 40, the king went on to Gilgal, and Chimham went on with him. And all the people of Judah and all, also half the people of Israel brought the king on his way. And then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, now listen, let's not under, don't, don't, don't miss that. In verse 41, then all the men of Israel, so this is not just the people of Judah who were already close to the king and who went with him. We're talking now everybody, even those who followed Absalom, they said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over to Jordan and all the David's men with them? So, so they're with David, but now here's what they're doing. Now the ones who were against David, who now are with David, are saying, So why did Judah get to be the ones to bring you over the Jordan? Why didn't all of us come over? In other words, jealousy. It started. This is the early roots of bitterness, disloyalty, um, jealousy that's going to literally by the time Rehoboam is king the kingdom will be divided no longer will there be one kingdom 
But this is the beginning point right here. Yes. Hmm. Well, there's no question that that's the, that is absolutely the pathology for a whole, the whole mess. No question. God didn't, I think God had in mind to give him a king at one point. I really do. But it was certainly not going to be who the people wanted, <laughs> Saul. And I think that David comes into it. I think David is God's choice. But look even at David. Look at the pathology of his own sin in his personal life. All this stuff adds up, folks. And so not even God's people are going to be one, much like in the church. That's why the emphasis on fellowship, how much we need fellowship. We need to work through our issues. We need to look beyond the differences that we have. We're all different. We really are. Do you realize that not everybody in the church believes politically the way you believe? In Vero Bible Fellowship. <laughs> and, but yet, yet they are your brothers and sisters in Christ. We don't focus on the things that were different. We focus on what brings us together. That's the only hope we have for this church to make it and to be a strong church for the Lord is that we always celebrate what we have in common because there is no way that this big old bunch would ever hang out together on their own if Christ had not saved us. We're too different, but that's the beauty of God. Amen. You know, if you go down to the, if you go down to, what's the place in town? The, uh, one of my good old buddies in town, he doesn't go to church, but he hangs out at the, it's not the Polish club. I think it might be the, is there an Italian club or something in town? Yeah. Those guys are all brothers in that place. You know why? Because they're all Italian and American. That's what holds them together. And the food. Anytime you got Italian food, that, 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 that counts for something, Gordon. That, that does count for something. But, but <laughs> at Vero Bible, it's not that kind of stuff. The backgrounds in this room alone, the nationalities, the, the cultural differences in this room alone, if you heard every story, would shock you. I'm telling you, it's Christ. That's why we're together. We should never take our eye off that ball. Amen? So, all the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, because the king is our close relative. In other words, he didn't bring you and I because we're closer to him in, 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 in uh, family. And have we eaten at all the king's expense, or has he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, we have ten shares in the king, and in David also we have more than you. In other words, you're just one tribe. We're ten different tribes. We're, they're going back and forth, puffing their chest out, trying, to, trying to, out, you know, to prove to one another that David should be more loyal to them and they should be more loyal to David. Bunch of junk. They're just blowing hot air. Why then did you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. Whoop-dee-doo. 
So the northern tribes felt excluded in this ceremonial welcoming of David back across the Jordan. And this is the beginning of a divided nation. Well, that's our study tonight. And look, we've only gone 12 minutes. No, just joking. All right, let's pray. Father, we want to thank you this evening because there's nothing like the Word. The Bible says it's like a hammer. It does call it a hammer. Sometimes we need to be minced. We need to be pounded like a chunk of meat. And in other times, it's like a scalpel. It's a sword, the Bible says. But that word sword literally means a smaller instrument that you can wield in close quarters. And that's what the Word does. It goes into us and it cuts out the wickedness. The, it reveals what's really inside of us. We also know that the Word of God is its bread and we feast upon it. It strengthens our every being, and we're thankful, Lord, tonight. Father, may the Word now, by the Holy Spirit, may the Word of God convict us, not just tonight, but tomorrow, and may, like Joab, not just convict, but Lord, may it give us direction. May it change the course that we're on. May it cause us, compel us to get right with others who might be like Shimei. We pray this in Jesus' name. All God's people said, Amen. God bless you. We'll see you Sunday, the Lord willing.